Welcome to another episode of Sisters in Conversation. I'm your host, Debello Mutwane. I'm an attorney by profession and the founder of a platform called Sister in Law, which is a platform dedicated to empowering women through legal education. On today's episode, I have with me Jennifer Matabane. Jennifer is a 27-year-old LLB graduate and a mother. She's currently employed at the Department of Justice and Constitutional Development as a maintenance officer intern. She says she's not naturally smart, but she's a hardworking woman who strives to achieve more in life. She didn't want to box herself after obtaining her degree just by just being an attorney. She wanted to explore the legal profession and what else it has to offer. That is how she landed up at the Department of Justice and Constitutional Development. One day, she aims to be a practicing attorney specializing in divorce and other family law-related matters. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hi, Jennifer. Welcome to the show. Hi, Tevello. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you so much for agreeing to, to be a guest on the show and for agreeing to share your story with us. I know it's always um, weird when a stranger, you know, knocks on your door and requests for you to share a piece of your life with us. So yeah, thank you. Thank you for agreeing to be a guest. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. And how are you? Good, thank you. How is the lockdown and the pandemic treating you? It's hectic. Lockdown is hectic. We're always indoors trying to work from home, but uh, we're getting there. We're getting there. Do you miss going into the office? No, I actually miss going home more than anything. Mm -hmm. Well, with me, there is no working from home. Either you work or you don't work because I work with people. I have to be there physically. So, yeah. Oh, okay. No, you're going to tell us all about that. So yeah, where is home? Tell us a little bit about Jennifer. Let's start from the beginning. Where is Jennifer from? Where were you born and raised? Um, how many siblings do you have? Were you raised by parents, grandparents, extended family? Um, which high school did you go to? And then we'll speak about why you decided to study law. Well, I was born in Rothenburg. Uh, I grew up there. I have two siblings now. I always forget that I have two siblings because I grew up with just one. <laughs> I was born in Rothenburg. I did my primary school in Rothenburg. I went to Viva Primary School. And then my parents, my parents were married. They decided they wanted to relocate. So we moved to Harangua when I was 12. Mm -hmm. So I went to Yosekwale then for three years, I think. And then they decided they are tired of each other mm. for like of a bit, so they got divorced. And then we had to move back to Rustenburg. Me, my mom, and my younger brother, who's now 24, I'm 27. Mm -hmm. And surprisingly, we have a three-year-old brother. Okay, okay. Then we moved to Rustenburg. Um, then I did my high school in Tabani Technical and Commercial High School. Uh, initially, I wanted to study tourism, but wait, before that, wait, I grew up. Sorry, wait, in Tabani, is it back in Rustenburg? Yes, in 2010, we moved back to Rustenburg, okay. and then we had to start life afresh. My mom was a housewife then, mm. so you could imagine moving back from living in a big house, being catered for by the husband, then we moved back to Rustenburg to now being a single parent to two teenagers. Mm -hmm. So yeah. 
eventually she did find a job and we, we tried, we tried. I went to high school. I did my grade 10 to 12 in Tavani Technical and Commercial High School. It's in Tavani in Rustenburg. Mm. I passed my matric and straight after passing matric, I fell pregnant. Just before I could register for varsity, mm. I found out I was pregnant. Mm. Unfortunately, it wasn't planned, but the baby was there. Mm. Um, I decided I wanted to study tourism, hospitality management, and my parents were not having it. They were like, no, we're not paying for that. Yeah. So because of the pregnancy, they were like, since while you're pregnant, you can't start varsity while you're pregnant. Mm. Take a gap year and then have the baby, then register for something that we might reconsider paying for. Mm. And then we lived. I lived. We lived in 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 a shack at some point in our lives. Mm. My mom couldn't afford to house, so we were living in a shack in Tabani, renting out those two room shacks. It was a good life. I can't complain. It was a mm. good life. My mom did everything she could for us. But eventually, she was able to buy us a house, and then we moved into our three bedroom house. And then I had my daughter. Mm. I think I was. My dad was like always on my case, like either you're gonna study BCom law or LLB. Mm. And by then, no interest whatsoever in those things. I just wanted to be a chartered accountant or a flight attendant. Is that I never thought of law? Is that why you wanted to study tourism for the flight attendant part, mm-hmm. or or what? What was the main reason you 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 know had an interest in tourism? Uh, I, firstly, I wanted to do chartered accountancy, but accounting was not my best friend. So in grade 11, I figured, you know what, this is not my strongest point. So I did tourism in high school. Then, you know, when you're doing these assignments, we actually had to do real stuff wherein you had to like book a flight. You mm-hmm. have to go through the internet, see flights that, okay, this flight is going to be leaving on this day it's this amount Mm. so you had to do all the research on realistic things you didn't just say I'm going to book a flight from here to Cape Town and then you just write a figure or something you had to do that so I got interested in that I got intrigued by all these things and having to research about different countries having to research about their their traditions their cultures what is prohibited in certain countries so I got interested in that so I was like this is what I want to do I want to explore the world but not just explore it for the fun of it, but in learning. Mm, mm. So that is how I decided I wanted to study hospitality management. And I also wanted to be a flight attendant because I just wanted to fly all over the world. Oh, okay. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. Sure. And then you fell pregnant at age 18, 19, correct? Yes, I, felt pre- I was 18 oh. when I was pregnant. I gave birth when I was 19. Uh, uh. And how was that period in your life? Can you just tell us about, you know, um, were you scared? How were your parents? How was your family? Um, how was the baby daddy at the time? Did you have any support? You know, how, how were things for you? Well, when I found out I was pregnant by then, in December of that year, I had to move to Pretoria now to live with my dad because I was studying a new, I was going to varsity. Mm. I was supposed to go to university. So my mom was like, no, go live with your dad and he'll figure things out for you that side. Mm. So I moved in with my dad and my stepmom and my younger sister, my stepmom's child. Mm. But they didn't they, know you were pregnant. I think my stepmom knew. I didn't know as well. My stepmom knew before I could find out I was pregnant. Yeah. Because she would always tell stories of how 
someone she knows tried to have an abortion and it went south. Uh So in in, in my, I think she was discouraging me to have an abortion, Uh but didn't want to say it because I had not told her I'm pregnant. Mm, Okay, okay. One time I just got so sick, I couldn't eat, I couldn't do anything. And she's like, you know what, you need to go to the doctor. Mm. So we went to the doctor and then I'm like, no, I'm old, I can go in on my own. She's like, Mm. okay, no problem. I go in. Mind you, at this point, pregnancy is not even on my mind. Sure. I get to the doctor. He's like, um, what's the problem? I tell him, I'm vomiting. My breasts are painful. I can't, I haven't eat, I had not eaten in three days. Mm. Like, um, are you sexual active? So I'm like, um, the last time I had sex, I think was in November. He's like, are you sure? So I'm like, yes, I'm sure. The last time I had sex was after I had completed my final exams. Sure. He's like, mm, okay. He's like, you said your symptoms are what? I explained the symptoms again. He didn't even bother himself doing the urine test. He just said, go lie on the bed there. And then I laid on the bed. And then he did the scan and that heartbeat went on. I literally died is, for a second. And, and this is before you, you now left with a few weeks until varsity starts. Yes, I'm left with, I think it was two, two, a week or so before I could go to school now. And this was to now study BCom law? No, this is to study hospitality management. Okay, okay. All right, okay. Yeah, so now, now we have a baby on the way and it's like two weeks to go. Does your father, do your parents then tell you that you have to put school on hold for the year? By this time, nobody knows. So I'm freaking out, I'm freaking out. And then he gives me prenatal pills. Mm. I hide them in my bag. I tell my, the problem was that I had um, acid problems. I was drinking a lot of cold drinks. So I told my stepmom, no, he said I have acid problems. I should stop drinking cold drink. And she laughed. I'm like, okay. And then I went on with my business. I called my aunt. I first called the baby daddy. I'm like, dude, I'm pregnant. And he says, I know. So I'm shocked. I'm like, how do you know? He said, no, you went, you're going to varsity. So I wanted us to build that bond. So I didn't want you to, what you get there. And then you were shocked. I'm shocked because I'm still in shock that I'm pregnant and I'm shocked that he knew that I'm pregnant. So I hang up the phone, call my aunt. I'm like, here's the situation. My My mom fell pregnant when she was 17. She had me when she was 18, got married when she was 19. So she would always give me this lecture of do not fall pregnant while you're young. I know how it is. Don't do that. Mm-hmm. And I always said, I'm not having sex. I'm not having sex. Now I have to go back and say it happened. So I call my aunt. I'm like, this is the situation. I came back from the doctor. They said I'm pregnant. And mom said, if I ever fell pregnant while I'm still young, she's going to chase me away. I'm going to go live with the baby dead. Mm-hmm. I'm crying. And my aunt is like, she won't do that. I'm like, no, you don't know my mom. She's going to kick me out. I don't want to be homeless. I don't want to be without my mom. And she's like, no, it's fine. Don't worry. She's like, what do you want to do? So I said, no, I want to terminate because I don't want to be chased out of home and be homeless. And she's like, is that your only reason to terminate because you don't want to lose your mom or do you, don't, you don't want a child? Mm. So I'm like, no, it's not even about that. I just don't want to lose my mom. And she's like, okay, give me a day and then I'll get back to you. I'm in Pretoria, they're in Rustenburg. Mm. this woman when she knocked off I think she went home and told my mom that same evening I got a call from my mom and she said your aunt called me your aunt came here 
and said some things that are confusing to me. So I need you to tell me what you did. Mm. My mom is not a loud person. So she's very calm, but the way she speaks. So I hung up the phone. I wrote an SMS that is like two pages long. Yeah. <laughs> explaining to her the situation. Hmm. I wrote the SMS explaining to her that this is the situation. I felt pregnant. I didn't know. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. What, 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 what? It's just like, ah, it's fine. Anyways, I don't trust where you are. Uh, I'd suggest that you pack your bags and come back home. Mm. We'll see what we can do. Mm. And I was so shocked. I was surprised, but I was happy because it's actually the opposite of what I was expecting. Yeah, because her wanting you to come home means there's some sort of re resolution. Sure. So Jennifer, just in the interest of time, I mean, I wanted you to share a bit of that background because I know there's maybe somebody who's listening to the story who's also finding themselves in your position or they found themselves in your position before. Um, so, you know, just, just wanted somebody to be able to relate to your story that, you know, falling pregnant at a young age is not the end of the world. I myself fell pregnant during my first year of, of my LLB degree. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a strong advocate or strong believer of the, of the notion that having a baby at a young age doesn't, um, is, is not a career limiting move and it doesn't end your career. But in the interest of time, let's just fast forward. You then have the baby, you go home, you have the baby. How do you eventually then get to studying law and into, you know, varsity for law? Okay, and then I went home and when I'm home, my mom is like, you're not just going to sit home. We're just giving you a year off. So figure mm -hmm. out what you want to do. With so I'm thinking she wants me to get a job and she's like, no, go to school. What are you going to do with just metric? Mm -hmm. Fine. And I remember what my dad had said, either you do become law LLB or else I'm not paying for your fees. Mm -hmm. By then, I would take a taxi, go to the post office, apply for varsities. So I got accepted at UP, at UJ and Northwest University. Mm -hmm. Both my parents were not going to UJ. Mm -hmm. They didn't even, they just said, you're not going there. Mm. And then they could get the fees for UP and Northwest University. So they both decided you're going to Northwest. Mm. So I registered After the year you had had, I'm sure they just wanted you as close to home as possible. True. <laughs> Actually, my dad wanted to go to Venda. My mom just wanted to meet close because my mm. dad believed that Invent would not be misbehaving. Mm -hmm. So you went to Northwest University you were, you, and while you were at varsity, you stayed at home with your mom and your child. I actually stayed in, uh, remember, Northwest University is the African campus. I live in Rustenburg. So I lived at wow. school. I left my daughter five months. So I left her with my parents and I went to varsity. Then I lived in rest mm -hmm. for three years. Mm. And tell us about that experience. How was it, um, you know, pursuing your studies on the one hand and then, you know, on the one end, naturally you miss, you miss home, you miss your child. Um, what were some of the challenges that you faced during, during those first few years of study and how did you manage to then just find a balance? I think that the first year was the hardest for me because remember my daughter by then was not living with my mom. She was actually living with my grandmother, which is about an hour's drive from where we live. Mm. So even when I go home, it has to be arrangements needed to be made because I would have to call my mom, say, are you going home this weekend? 
And then if she's going, then I can come home and then we can go to her home to go see my child. Mm. So the first year was a strenuous because remember, I grew up in a setting where I wasn't allowed to party. I wasn't allowed to have friends. I, I was basically school, home, school, home. I didn't have friends. I didn't party. I didn't do anything. Mm. Now I'm in a setup where I'm alone. I can do whatever I want. and I don't know how to do it because you don't know where your limits are when you grew up in a place where six o'clock you have to be home mm. now i'm in, there's no time limit i can go and come as i please mm. i have not experimented with alcohol now i have to experiment with alcohol because all my friends are drinking sure. so the first year was it was it was a bit on and off but mm. one thing i'm proud of is that i passed all my first year modules mm. yeah so and then after that everything was just okay now figure life out mm. Mm. you have to between partying being a mom and being a student but my parents didn't give me that pressure of having to be a mom they always told me focus on your books don't worry about the baby if you miss home just come home but don't ever worry about if the child is fed the child is taken care of all that is on us oh no i think that is that is extremely beautiful um like we always say but they really a lot of that comes from the sacrifices that our own parents or our own families are willing to make. So when there is a support structure in place, there they, they isn't um, any reason for us not to go out there and conquer the world. And I mean, you mentioned partying. Uh, that's, 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 that's a part of anybody's varsity life. So um, according to me, you were just a normal, you were just a normal child in varsity who had a child, but that, that, that's about it. And then, um, after your degree, um, you sat for two months while looking for articles, correct? Yes. What, well, before that, what specifically made you decide? Sorry, what specifically made you decide that you this is the route you want to take? You want to do your articles? Uh, with me, I, I didn't. When when I finished, I wanted I wondered uh, pupillage, and I'm thinking so. I'm gonna go another year without an getting income. an income. Mm -hmm. So then I'm like, no, I can't do that. And I, I told my mom about the, the law school and she was like, no, you know what? If something doesn't come up soon, I don't mind. You can do the law school. Remember, it's six months. Mm -hmm. So she's like, no, if, if you don't get anything soon, it's fine. We'll do the, the six months PLT thing of yours mm -hmm. and then I'll pay for it. Mm -hmm. So I literally went on Google, Googled all the law firms in Rustenburg and sent out my CVs. I didn't wait for any vacancy to be available. Mm -hmm. I just sent out my CVs them if there is an open positions please let me know two months down i get a call from bule attorneys and my surname is mataban there is a magistrate in rustenburg called magistrate mataban mm -hmm. coincidentally his friends were she was friends with my dad so she the, the principal calls me and is like um i see your surname is mataban are you related to magistrate mataban mm -hmm. so i'm like no like do you know her i'm like no like oh okay so why did you send your cv because we're not looking to employ people mm. i'm like no i'm taking chances if there is an open vacancy just let me know if there isn't none it's unfortunate for me he's like okay interesting and then he hung up on me so i'm still shocked okay what just happened yeah later i get an sms he says you are kind of invited to an interview on this date at this time our offers our office addresses this 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 uh, from pool attendees mm -hmm. no it was 
you, it was a screening. He said well, you're invited to a screening. Mm-hmm. We we're trying to figure out what is screening. Uh, there's nothing about screening on Google. I don't know what screening <laughs> is. Yeah. So I get there on the day of the screening. I meet one of my former classmates from Varsity. Okay. And she's like, do you know what, what we're going to do today? I'm like, I'm, I'm blank. I don't know what screening is, but I've prepared for an interview. Mm-hmm. So we get there, does it individually. We get there and he's like, why did you study law? So I tell him the story that, no, I didn't want to study law. It was my dad who forced me, who pushed me into studying law. But after my first year, I fell in love with family law. Mm-hmm. That was the only thing that kept me interested in studying further. Mm. Even my research I did based on family law. Mm. It's like, okay, where and do you was, live? Was, was his firm offering family law as a service? Yes, it was. It was for doing family law, civil, estate, and rough. Okay, wonderful. Mm. I'm like, um, I live in Taban West with my mom and my daughter and my younger brother. Uh, my mom is employed in the mine. My brother is still in school and my daughter is in daycare. It's mm. like, okay, cool. Do you have a do you have any form of transport? I'm like, no, I I I can use a taxi, but my mom has a car, so she, normally she drives me wherever I want to go. Like, okay, okay. It's like we're done. I'm like, uh, but you didn't ask me anything law related. You're like, who said this is an interview? It was a screening. It's because I've never been to an interview before. This is the first time in my life I'm I'm in an interview mm. in a screen. So he says. And then we left. A week later, then we get the invite for an official interview. And then I went for the interview. I'll never forget that interview because he asked me one question that I did not know about. To this day, I know it by heart. He asked me section 174. What is section 174? And I went blank. Section 174 of? The Criminal Procedure Act. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because I'm like, out of all things in the world, you think of that. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, we'll put it aside. And then we did other questions. We did it, we did it. And it's like, okay, I'm going to put your CV there. One day when I meet you, I'm going to ask you about this section 174 and you better know it. So I'm like, okay, cool. Thank you for the opportunity. Then I left. I told my immediately on my way home, I Googled section 174. And then I said, okay, it's dismissal of an accused, is a discharge of a case of an accused if the state does not have enough evidence. So I'm like, okay, this is it. All right. Then then all this happened in a month. Then the next week he calls and he said, no, he sent an SMS again. Congratulations. Um, you've been appointed as our new candidate attorney. Please report for duty tomorrow at 8 a.m. Yeah. This was on a Wednesday. <laughs> I started my job on a Thursday on the 11th of October 2018 and when I got there the first thing he said after saying good morning Miss Matabane he said I remember I said I'll ask you what is section 174 and then you and told yeah him. Carried on and then I told him. sure and then, yes, you and then you did your two years of articles um can you tell us about you know if there were any challenges working for a one-man owned law firm um, maybe if you can share one of your highlights or one of your low moments with us during the two years of your articles we'd really love to hear that um, I think that the highlight of my my two years of articles would honestly be the first time I did my divorce case that was probably the proudest moment of my 
my journey mm. when I did my first documentary in the regional court. Mm. The law will have to be honestly speaking when I had to do a bail application. I was terrified because you have to consult in the holding cells mm-hmm. with that juice. <laughs> bunch of men in those cells, it smells. Yeah. And I they call names. So I, for me, it wasn't a nice experience. I was terrified. And mind you, I'm doing bail for rape. Mm-hmm. Something that naturally uncomfortable even talking about. Mm-hmm. So I have to report to someone who's been accused of rape. Mm-hmm. That was probably the hardest thing for me. Mm-hmm. But did it and the guy got free he actually didn't do it uh, the, the girl was just being spiteful and also working for for a man who's who's as as principled as my principal mm. it's not easy it's not easy because that man has had standards that you don't do you don't do basics he didn't do basic things everything had to be top-notch and people respected him to a point where even when you're walking, the mere fact that you're from Pula Atenis, people expect a lot from you because mm. of who he is. Mm. So it wasn't an easy job. Even if you do the slightest thing, a postponement, people are expecting you to do it with confidence and mm. such a because of who your principal is. Mm. I really love that. Um, often on the show, one of the questions I ask is, whether or not, um, I asked my guests, do you think that men are invested in mentoring young women in the legal profession? So from what you're telling me, it sounds like you really had a good mentor in him. I did. I actually did. Because at some point, um, he, would, he wasn't really open with the staff members, but he was open with me. So they would always ask, why is he so friendly with you? And with him, I think he, he believed in me so much that he thought, he would make me stand out in the crowd. He didn't want me to feel as if I'm in a, in, a, in a field filled with men. He wanted me to feel that I'm a lawyer. I'm not a female. I'm an attorney like everybody else. Mm-hmm. That is what he always told There's no male, there's no female in this office. If you do the job, get it done right. Sure, I absolutely love that. So what was the composition of the office? Was it just, was it a candidate? Um, how many associates? Um, or was it just you and him and then the support staff? When I started, it was him and it was all females. It was just him, the male, and mm-hmm. all the staff was female. It was two candidates when I started and it was me and my senior candidate. And then it was a PA. Mm. And then by end of the year, PA left. So it was just two candidates. And then one of the candidates who had become an admitted attorney and went for greener pastures came back as an admitted attorney and then he was now an associate. Mm-hmm. During my, my second year, it was two candidate attorneys, two PAs, one was an associate and then we had two receptionists. Mm. Okay. All right. I, I, I'm asking that question particularly because a lot of the time we really, um, a lot of the time we really what's the English word? Your English bundles. Um, I'm just going to say it in Susutu. A lot of the time, but Tubanyaza working at a small firm, right? And everybody is always targeting these big law firms in Santon. And we really forget about the kind of exposure that we can have when we have almost a very open door relationship with our, with the, with the owner of the firm, you know, where you can just go into his office, have coffee, discuss a case, and actually have exposure to more than the case itself because you have 
this wealth of knowledge, um, you know, somebody who's been in the field for some time, somebody who is running their own law firm, the matters that land up on your table are not specific to the department you're in. Whereas, you know, if you're in a bigger law firm, you may be stuck in the commercial department, you'll never get um, exposure to a bail application, for example. So, uh, you know, how was that experience just having that open door policy with the owner of the firm? For me, it was actually exceptionally good because like you said, when I when I would speak with my colleagues who are in bigger firms, they, they normally did uh, small things like your motion cords, nothing too hectic. Mm. Whereas with us, we were given, he would come and say, uh, there's a trial that's happening. I have a trial in Mohas or I have a trial in Pretoria. I can attend this. Uh, try and figure something out, but don't postpone it. Just don't just postpone it. Figure something out and then postpone it. Mm. So you'll have to figure out of that case that you hardly know. Mm. Read through the case and, because he's not. My boss was one person who didn't baby you. Mm. He wouldn't say take this file. This is what's happening on the file. Do this. He'll just give you the file and say go deal with this file. Mm. You have to read the file on your way to court, then communicate with the accused person and see what's happening before you can actually do anything. Mm. I learned how to draft comments. I learned how to draft pleadings. I learned how to draft notices, pleading, uh, bail applications, everything. I, I would draft it and then send it to him. He didn't send you a template to say, mm. edit on this. You do it yourself and then he will correct you from there. Sure. So, so for me, it was amazing. So you'd say by the end of your two-year articles, you are almost like competent to run your own firm, in fact, because of the kind of exposure that you had in a small firm and you sort of know how everything works. You have a good relationship with court staff as well. Yes, I would say that because in, in a way, uh, we always had to do everything. There's no... Um, because I love family law, he didn't put me in a box and say, you only got to do family law. Mm -hmm. I did civil cases, I did draft matters, I did criminal matters, everything. He would always say, even if you don't like something, have knowledge about it so that one day you are able to assist somebody on that matter. Even if it's not your passion, mm -hmm. just know about it. Because law is so broad that you don't want to be boxed in a situation where you just know one thing. Mm -hmm. Very, very but the difficulty in the finance of running a law firm. Yeah, no, I I, I I know all about that red tape. Sure. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your experience. Um, I absolutely love that experience. And I really, I really do try to use the platform to also push the agenda for small law firms. And with anything else, a small law firm has its own challenges, like how a big law firm has its own challenges. But um, a lot of the time, I really want to encourage, especially, um, you know, my younger listeners that keep your options open. Um, the, the, the path for us, like big five firms, you know, that's not the path for everybody. They, if, if we're all at big five, there's going to be so much traffic there. And what's going to happen to the legal profession as a whole if, if, if we're not, you know, branching out to smaller law firms um, and you know, those smaller law firms are also part of, um, you know, the economy. We also keeping the economy um, alive. So there's absolutely nothing wrong in pursuing a smaller law firm, getting all the exposure, having a good relationship with your principal, and really just using that experience to your own benefit. Yes.
Sure. Small law firms are actually they're actually very good and they, they give you that opportunity to, to actually learn because they don't have time to be baby breastfeeding you or giving you small things to handle. Yeah, absolutely. And then what did you, um, you, you wrote your board exams, um, I presume. And then how, how, yeah, how was the board exams for you? Did you write all four in one go? Did you write two? How did you spread it out? So I did my, I wrote my, I first did them after doing my PLT mm. and then I registered, okay, I'm fresh from these classes. I'm ready for these exams. I'm going to write all four of them, mm. registered for all four exams. Unfortunately, I failed all four of them. I was so heartbroken. I, I, but, I didn't understand what was happening. But how did we trick ourselves? Because the same thing happened to me. I was also fresh out of the classes. I'm like, yo, I still remember everything. I'm going for all four. I only passed one. I was like so defeated. I was like, but I thought I knew everything and I just wanted to work with everything while it was still fresh on my mind. So that's what I did. And I'm like, how is this even possible? So I tried again the second time. I did only two. And then I got oral and then I failed the oral. I'm like, no, I'm done. And then I stopped writing exams. Like, I'm not going to put myself through such heartache. Mm -hmm. I'm done. Mm then I've decided to take a break on my exams uh, I've registered to write in August now hopefully I'll pull through mm-hmm. okay all right um so from my understanding you still did your two years of articles but you are now working at um Madge Court as a maintenance officer are you a maintenance officer or maintenance clerk is there a maintenance officer Yes, there is a difference. Okay, so can you just tell us about the differences um, and tell us how you landed that that role? I think it's a, yeah, I, I definitely haven't had somebody on the show who is a maintenance officer or somebody who works at court. Well, for me, there, there were posts, uh, remember my contract had ended mm. and my boss was like, well, you haven't passed your boss and if I keep you, what am I keeping? I'm keeping you on what capacity because you're no longer a candidate attorney. You're not an admitted attorney. And so, so you like, can keep you as an associate in training. How? <laughs> so I'm like, well, he's right. He's just keeping me here. Mm. I'm getting a salary. And other people need opportunities for them to do their articles. I'm mm. occupying space here. So that's when I started applying. And people don't actually believe that I applied like everybody else. Is that 83? attach my application my documents and qualifications that is how I just applied mm. three months later when I had actually even forgotten I had applied for this job I received mm. a call mm. that come for an interview and then I went for the interview in the regional office in Joburg we went for the interview I think it was like 50 of us the, the interview was spread out for three days mm-hmm. I went for my interview I was so scared because this is now my second interview in my life. Mm-hmm. Get there. I'm ready because I've, I've dealt with maintenance cases before during my, during my article. So I'm not like scared, but I don't know with the Department of Justice, how does it work? Because I was in a private sector. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how the, how the interviews are going to be like. So I'm sitting there, okay, people are busy trying to gather everything because most of them are fresh from varsity students. Mm-hmm. And then this one guy comes out of the interview room and he's like, so they ask him, how was it? And he's like, no, it was good. It wasn't that bad. And he's like, guys, you must know the Batupili principle. 
I have never heard of such thing. But to and be like you must, yes, but to Billy principal, mm. they're gonna ask you about. It. And then he left. In my heart, I still pray for that guy. I always say I'm thankful for that because I went on Google and I googled what is but to Billy principal. What is it? It's it's um. It's principles that uh, as a public worker, you must know that what to do. Uh, you must give, you must give service to this. You must give service to the public no. in a good way. Okay. okay. You must, yeah. You must, you must uh, deliver the job, render services. Mm -hmm. I think it's, they asked me for four of them. So I got to the interview with a panel of four people. Mm. Then they start. They, they introduce the, themselves. Are, sorry, when you were doing the application, what what qualifications did you need at that time? Because I also heard you mention that some people were straight out of varsity. So did you just need your metric and and your LLB qualification? Yes, they said experience would be an advantage, but basically they just wanted your metric and LLB. Okay, all right. So I went in there, they introduced themselves and then they tell you this one is gonna ask you three questions, that one, four questions mm. and, and, and. So they asked me questions, what is maintenance? Who can apply for maintenance? At what stage does an order become defective? What not, what not? And then they came to the big questions, give us four, but to Billy principles. And, and then I mailed it. Google was your friend and you just Googled. So I, I'm like, I know them by heart. I listed even more than four because I just gotten these answers now. And then they're like, okay, thank you. Um, they also asked me, uh, would you need time to relocate? Remember, we lie on our CVs, unfortunately. Um, okay. I had I had my address. So they're thinking I'm living in Pretoria by then. So they're like, okay, so because I mean, you're living your in Pretoria. dad stays in Pretoria at that time, does he not? No, my dad passed away in 2014. Hey. So I used my friend's address okay. for the job. All right. So like, okay, we might place you in Central, but we see you living in Pretoria East. Will you be able to manage the traveling? So I'm like, no, it's fine. It's fine. Don't worry, I'll figure it out. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, thank you. And then we left. Uh, a week later, the following Friday, the interview was on a Friday. The following Friday, they called us and said, come for training. Mm. Remember, at this point, I'm still employed. Mm. And then they said, come for training. Mm. So in my head, obviously, they can't give you a job today. They're going to give you notice sometime yeah. to come. We went to Joburg training, contract signing, and they said, tomorrow you must report for due. It was not even Friday, it was a Monday. Yes. And then they said, tomorrow you must all report to your stations on a Tuesday. I'm like, sorry, say what? They said, no, tomorrow everybody must report to their stations. You've been placed at Pretoria Central. So tomorrow, 8, 8 uh, 7.45, your supervisor will be expecting you. When are the interviews, how do you start tomorrow? Yo. And I'm stressed. I'm like, Rastenbeck, Pretoria Central. <laughs> how is it going to work? <laughs> so I'm like, okay, um, I asked I ask them to give me an, an extra day. So I asked, can I start on Wednesday instead? Because now I needed to, remember, I still have a job. Mm. I need to, to leave a job. I still have to find a place where I can live mm. until I figure myself out. So mm. they're like, no, it's not a problem. You can start on Wednesday. Mm. Then I went and got my job. I quit on the spot. And then I asked one of my friends to stay with them for a month until I got my salary and found an apartment. 
and sure. the rest is history. The rest is history, sure. So um, you've been in the job for a few months now. Can you tell us a little bit about the duties that a, um, a, uh, a magistrate's officer, a maintenance officer deals with on a day-to-day basis, just for the younger listener or just for somebody who you know, is really just tired of being in practice and they want to consider a different journey. What are some of the duties you handle on a day-to-day service? And have you, in the short time that you've been there, have you worked on a case that has been of particular interest that you're at liberty to share the details with us? I mean, obviously without sharing names, but just the details. All right, the, the, the difference, okay, by the way, between a maintenance clerk and a maintenance officer, the clerk is the one who deals with applications. Mm. So they post uh, the case and then put it on the system and give you a date. Mm. Then you come to the maintenance officers, which is us. Mm. So we have different types of applications. Then we, we have the J101, which we call the new applications. Mm. In terms of the Maintenance Act, it's section 61A. Mm. It's a new application where a person comes in and says, um, I'm requesting maintenance in the amount of 2,000 rand. Mm. And then we ask the respondent. But before we start everything else in the maintenance court, we first have to um, ask about the paternity of the child. So the father actually has to acknowledge in front of a maintenance officer that that is my child. Mm. I'm, I'm, I admit that I acknowledge that before we can do anything. In an event that the father says, ah, I'm not sure if it's my child or... Mm whatever the reason would be, then we have to do paternity testing. Who pays for it? The father, who, who, who alleges must pay. Okay. So we have, we have the facilities in court, but they also have a right to do it in private labs. So mm. they will tell us whichever one they prefer. If they do it in court, we get the result and we disclose it to them. If they want to do it outside of court, they are the ones who are supposed to provide us with the results. Mm. Then once we receive the results then we can start with the maintenance application and hear what is being requested by the applicant mm. so we'll have an applicant a mother saying they want 2000 so we lately i've noticed that we have problems with our admin clerks helping with the applications mm. so a person will come and say they want maintenance in of 5000 mm. then i will ask them if you pay you one five thousand for maintenance, it means that the minor child spent ten thousand a month because that is his half share that you're claiming. Mm. Then you get stories. No, I'm actually no, the child doesn't spend that much, and then I have to do what we call calculations. Mm. So remember, with maintenance, we look at shelter, we look at education, we look at health, we look at clothing, and what else? Food. Mm. Those are the five aspects that we look at the basics we calculate them. So we'll look at how much do you spend for grocery. Then we divide it, we give a child one third of that portion. Mm. So if there are two adults in a household and one child, we're gonna divide it by five. So it's one third of the child. Mm-hmm. If they are, and then there's grocery, they say they buy grocery of 3000, we're also gonna divide it by five. That's one third of the child. Mm. Then that is divided. It may seem unfair, but remember, you're buying grocery of 2,000 rand and everybody in the household is eating it. It's not just for the child. So you can't say be responsible for the whole 3,000 of grocery, whereas there are other people in the household who are also enjoying that grocery. Oh, yeah. And then you have, your, when it comes to education and school stuff, we don't basically divide that because that belongs to the child alone. Mm. So when you calculate 
then from 5,000, it goes to 2,000. Mm. And then you, you paint a bad guy who does not want to give the, the other parent the responsibility to maintain their children. But when you look at the expenses, they don't amount to what you have written. Mm. Because remember, before we do a section 16 content order, proof has to be given to the court. You have to provide us with your monthly expenses of the child. If you're saying you're spending 3,000 on the child every month, we need to see that in paper. We need to see that you're paying school fees for 2,000 every month. We need to see that you're paying school transport for 1.5 every month. If you're saying you're buying, the child is doing extramural activities for 500, we need to see proof of that in order for us to establish that these expenses exist. We're not maintaining your lifestyle, but the lifestyle of the child. Mm. No, I like that. And I also like that you keep landing on a figure, yeah, 2,000 rand. I feel we are in, I feel that there's also misconceptions around maintenance. Maybe like people who share, who share their experiences with other people have put a number in place. So I'm of the opinion that a lot of women think that there's a fixed amount, like you have to go to maintenance court to get 2000 rand but that's not that's not that's not the position 2000 rand is maybe the number that people or one or two people have experienced and shared with the public but for example right now if i'm staying with a child and they are homeschooling as a result of the pandemic and they are using wi-fi and i got wi-fi now because of the child homeschooling and they are also enjoying the electricity during the day because I can't like my house is Can I also put all of that on 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 my request for maintenance? Because now the child is spending more time at home. They're using Wi-Fi. They're using electricity. They are inevitably eating more, and you know they they basically at home full time. I I should then also be able to put the portion of rent correct. Yes. You can. Remember with maintenance is not always about, it's always about the child. So if the child is home full time, we can't say they eat less. If they're in school, they eat less because they are in school. They're not home all the time. Everybody knows, even an adult, if you're home the whole day, what is the one thing you do? You eat. Mm. So same goes for the child. And Wi-Fi nowadays, I've, I've, I'm always telling them that Wi-Fi and tablets and cell phones, they've become a basic need for mm. kids mm. nowadays. It's not a luxury expense. Kids actually need the Wi-Fi. They actually need tablets. Mm. So if a tablet is broken, the other party has to come into play and say, you bought the last time, let me buy this time. Or I can't afford that one. Can we go half and half on that one? Mm. Sure. And what would you say is the... What, what, what is the main... Um, what is the main issue that you have found that men just don't want to pay maintenance? What, what are some of the reasons that have even made you laugh as an officer where you're just like, I don't understand, this is your child. What's, what's, what's the problem that day? What's going on? One of the problem is that uh, men want to feel like they are they're in charge. That I've realized. So they, if you say pay 3000 for maintenance, for them, it's, it's a huge figure. I can't afford that. Uh, it's way beyond what I'm making. But if you tell him, pay school fees directly to the school, pay transport directly to the transport person, uh, buy clothing, and then send them to the... They won't mind doing that. Mm. And if you calculate it, it's more than the 3,000 rand because they feel that if I'm not giving her money, then I'm in charge. Mm. So mm. it becomes a challenge because they want the money. 
But when you say, if you calculate what he's actually spending on, it's actually more than what he was going to give you. So they want that power that I'll pay the school fees directly to the school. I'll pay the transport, I'll buy the clothes. If the child wants anything, they can call me, I'll buy it for them as long as I'm not giving you money. Mm-hmm. And with maintenance, we do accept that it does not always have to be about money. Mm-hmm. We do accept that and all done in that way that the, the respondent will pay one, two, three, one, two, three, and no money will be given to the applicant. Mm-hmm. Sure. And then men who are in a position where they say they won't pay I've had one who, who said he was going to quit his job. Mm. Uh, he was going to the next day. So he's like, no, when I leave the night shift, I'm going to resign. So in my head, I'm thinking, okay, he's joking because he's frustrated. Mm. I'm not kidding. Next day, he came and gave me a letter of his resignation from work saying, so what happens now? I'm like, are you serious? You left your job. He's like, I told you I'm going to leave my job. I can't afford to pay maintenance. So we might all not get an income. Oh my god. <laughs> oh, so yeah, frustrating. Men are frustrating. <laughs> sure. Okay, so all right, now we have the maintenance um the maintenance order. After after you who who grants the order? Is it granted by you or do they still have to go to a magistrate? They still have to go to a magistrate. So basically, we have a procedure what we call a section 6 inquiry. Mm-hmm. A section 6 inquiry wherein the mother says I want 2000 and then the father maybe says I can't afford that now I have to do a, a financial inquiry on his bank statement to see whether he can or cannot afford mm. I will go through his, um, he has to provide the court with his six months bank statement six months pay slip list of expenses and proof of those expenses so I need to see what he's spending his money on in order for him to say I cannot afford 2000 rent mm. so I'll look at what he's spending on your things your rent your grocery your transport money and everything obviously when you're going through someone's bank statement you're gonna find your takeaways are there your mm. alcohol is there mm. your airtime uh there's money being withdrawn you don't know where it's going that is mm. money that we need to account for mm. you can't be buying always for 500 in a month mm. and claim you cannot pay tenants you can be buying alcohol of a thousand rand a month and claim you can be you can't pay maintenance so once i go through your bank statement and i realize that, that there is this small amounts that you spend regularly that could benefit the child my duty as a maintenance officer is then to inform the magistrate that i did a section six inquiry and according to my findings i believe that this the, the respondent can afford maintenance it might not be two thousand maybe according to my findings i can see that he can actually afford 1,500 for maintenance. Mm. Then the magistrate will ask him, according to the findings of the maintenance officer, you can afford 1.5 and then he'll give his reasons why he cannot afford it. If he's still insisting that he cannot afford it, no matter what I believe, then we go for trial, what we call a section 10 inquiry. Mm-hmm. Then we're gonna argue it's a full blown trial wherein he has to prove to the court he can't afford it. No matter what we do, he can't afford it. But the court will then make a final decision. And unfortunately, once it gets to a section 10 inquiry, it's it's not about what he wants or what she wants. The court may decide on the 2000 that she requested. It may come to a conclusion of actually more, saying that the expenses of the child are actually more than 2000 And according to our findings, he can actually afford to pay more than 2000 mm-hmm. And they will make a court order of 3000 rent. 
if the court actually believes that he can't afford to pay the 1.5 and actually can afford to pay a thousand rand, they will make a ruling of that. And then a J168 will be drafted, which is a court order made by the magistrate that he pays a thousand rand. All right, wonderful. So if, um, if the parties are in agreement before it goes to the magistrate, then you can just, you can just grant the order. No, I just draft the section 16 consent form and then I sign it, they both sign it and then we take it to the magistrate. Remember, we have, we, we have to be transparent about this. The magistrate just informs them, makes them aware that this is the content order. This is what you are binding yourself to, that you're gonna be paying a thousand rand every month. This is an agreement that you both agree to. It's just in paper and I'm just making it a court order. And then they will explain to them the repercussions of not following the order the section 27, section 28, section 30 and 31 of the Maintenance Act to the respondent, should he default in the payments, then it's granted. Okay, and then there's also like, a, I, I, I don't know if I can call it a misconception or maybe a myth, a myth, but what actually, what are actually some of the punishments that do actually happen for a man or a respondent who doesn't end up paying maintenance? What are some of the penalties, punishments that you have actually seen um, take effect? Well, the first one normally, I remember before it becomes a criminal offense, they, they we try to do other things first. So firstly, we try to do the garnishi, where in uh, the order is taken to the respondent's workplace and then the money is deducted directly from his salary. So when mm -hmm. he gets paid, the applicant also gets paid. Mm -hmm. Then in an event that a person maybe is self-employed, remember we can't garnish a self-employed person. We can then do attachment of assets, take his mm -hmm. property, sell it, get the amount, mm -hmm. which is something that is not done a lot because it, the responsibility of attaching and removing and selling now lies with the complainant. Mm. Remember, the complainant came to something I cannot afford. Mm. So they obviously they can't afford the services of a sheriff mm. to attach, remove, put in storage, and and and. Mm. Then the last one is a section thirty-one, wherein this person is basically refusing, saying, "I'm not gonna pay." You know, people who are self-employed, it's it's difficult for us to actually do anything about it because they are self-employed, mm. and the applicant does not the means to uh, to employ the sheriff to do the, all those things. Mm. So you resort to the section 31. Section 31 is where they get arrested and then they face criminal charges. You get in the box like a criminal, you, uh, you put in the stand there, then they tell you that uh, you've missed payment, you are in areas for, you have people owing 250,000 of maintenance. You get mm. in the box, you become an actual now. And then you state your case why you are not paying, paying maintenance uh, in an event that the court does not believe you. Normally, when a person is arrested for, for that maintenance, Section 31, they convert the case back to maintenance in order for us to do a Section 7 and 8 investigation, wherein we look into your finances, whether during that period when you were not paying, what was happening in your account? Was there money coming in or you were just simply broke, you couldn't afford? And then once we get the investigation, we take it back to the criminal courts, to the SPP, and then they will take a decision whether they want to prosecute or not. Remember, if you are found guilty, you can be imprisoned for a period not exceeding one year, or you can be fined, or you can get both. Mm -hmm. It will depend on the SPP decision. So people do get arrested for not paying maintenance. People do get arrested for not appearing in court 
if they were warned by the by the by the magistrate to be in court and they failed to do that. In the past two weeks, I have gotten authorized warrant of arrest, three of them, mm. for people who just decided they're not going to come to court. Mm. Sure. So there are repercussions. Person decides they 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 just simply don't want to pay. Mm. Remember, there is also a, a section six one B where in where you can if you cannot afford to pay maintenance, you approach the court. You make an application with the court that there was an order that was granted against me that I should pay maintenance in the amount of three thousand. Then I was employed or I was getting ten thousand as a salary. Now I've got a salary cut. I can no longer afford to pay this maintenance. Mm. Something will the court will call the, the applicant who will now become the respondent in this case. Explain the situation to her that here is the proof that this person lost their job or they got retrenched or they got a salary cut. They can no longer afford to pay three thousand of maintenance. We are therefore going to reduce the maintenance amount. Remember, whether you you got retrenched or not, the needs of the child are still there. Mm. The child still needs to. It. it does not say because you lost your job now the child must not be fed mm-hmm. the, the amount may be reduced but we can't just cancel it because for the fact that you're still surviving for the fact that you're still eating you still have a cell phone you're still able to go look for a job that same money could be used for the child why not split whatever you have with the child and say don't cancel the maintenance at least i'll pay 500 until i'm okay Sure, yeah. Yo, no, thank you. Thank you for your insights, Jennifer. Just, you know, um, in the interest of time, we have unfortunately come to the end of the show. But what's the one parting piece of advice you can give, you know, women which would make the process go a little bit smoother or just the one piece of advice you can give, whether it's for the applicant or for the respondent, what would really just make things go a little bit smoother during this process? I think... Honesty on, on your child's expenses. Uh, don't fluctuate things. Don't increase them by a thousand rand day and day. Mm. As long as everything is accordingly. If you're saying school fees is 2,000, you put it there. Put everything as it is. Bring all the relevant, as long as you're transparent with the court, bring all your relevant documentation to the table and say, this is what I spend on a monthly basis. Do your half share. Mm. Then the court will really it won't even take six months. Remember, they have this rule that maintenance should not be more than three months in a row. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, it's not happening. Mm -hmm. It's not happening because you have people coming to court without documentation, people who want maintenance but don't want to disclose their financial position to the court. Mm -hmm. It becomes a a hassle to actually try to assist someone who's not coming to the table. Mm -hmm. So as long as you have all the documentation before court and saying, here's my proof, this is what I need. As a respondent, also do the same thing. Here's my proof. I cannot afford it. I can only afford this. And what is fair is fair. This is your child at the end of the day. Whether you like it or not, the court cannot actually tell you how to be a parent. We can we can just put an amount. That's it. But we can't tell you how to be a parent to your child. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Thank you. And just, you know, um, to end off uh, the, the conversation, what um what what are your what are your final thoughts or what would you like to say to maybe younger listeners um maybe anyone who's pregnant at the moment and they're supposed to be starting school or um anybody i mean you mentioned that you also had to live in a shack for some time what what words of encouragement encouragement can you give somebody who is maybe in in the face of challenges and they believe that there is no way out of their current situation 
um, yeah, what words of motivation can you share with a younger listener or with somebody who's really just very, very low on, on hope or on seeing themselves on the other side of the journey? Honestly, this life is difficult for everyone. What I just want them to know is that nothing lasts forever. Mm. Whatever situation you're going through, it's going to pass. Mm. Keep your faith, keep praying. But remember, prayer works with action. You don't just pray and sit. Mm. You work and then you pray. So once you, once you put in the effort, God is going to notice. God is going to recognize you and things will pull through. Nothing lasts forever. Trust me, nothing lasts forever. Mm. That baby is going to grow. Fortunately, the government grants it's something it's not a lot but it's something those exams you study you study you study you study there's there's nothing if you put an effort honestly you can't fail if you put in the effort mm. it's just a, it's a state of mentality that i'm gonna fail you just sit and you say i'm gonna fail if, obviously if you're sitting you're gonna fail but if you study you're gonna you do your half bit and ask for god to do the rest you did your part it's not, there's nothing in this world that lasts forever, unfortunately. You have to be strong and fight for your position in this life. Fight for your position, fight to be a better person, especially as a young woman. I always say social media is a scam because yeah, people yeah. go through social media and believe that a 21-year-old owns a BMW and a mansion in Santen, and I, as a 21-year-old, studying to become a better person, I'm actually a failure. No, people mm -hmm. have different attitudes in life. People mm -hmm. have different successes in life. Mm -hmm. What is your success? My success. And as long as I'm focused on what I want, I will get there. It might not be today or next year, but eventually I will get there. Mm -hmm. Sure. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jennifer. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. Social media is a scam. I'll never get tired of saying that to people, um, especially, you know, um, younger people who are very impressionable. Social media is a scam. Just, just live your life. So absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. Thank you so much for your insights, Jennifer. I have no doubt that after this, um, um, after listening to you, you're going to have quite an influx of women who want to clarify their positions, maybe who are applying for maintenance, or you're going to have some fathers as well, just um, <laughs> requesting clarity from you. So just be ready and on the lookout for that influx of questions. Thank you so much for having me. And by all means, I don't mind. I don't mind assisting anybody at any time. Thank you know, for people to just get it right and what is yeah. best for their children. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Thank you so much, Shana. Thank you, thank you thank for your you. time and um, have, a, have a blessed week further. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Tevelo. <laughs>